I'm glad that you're here with us this evening. Thank you for coming. Um, on Tuesday morning, September 11th, 2001, 2,977 people perished. They died because 19 terrorists who used uh, commercial aircraft flew those aircraft into the Twin Towers in New York City, the World Trade Center, the Twin Towers. They crashed one of them into the Pentagon in uh, Northern Virginia, DC metro area. And then there was another plane that had taken off from Newark Airport and it was headed to San Francisco. And over this part of the country, there were 40 people who were on that airplane, passengers and crew, who heroically, uh, after that plane turned around, who heroically attacked the terrorists and that plane crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, was headed for the US Capitol. There was, on that day, significant material loss, but even more so, there was tremendous human loss as well on that day. Those of us who were alive during that time remember how we felt. It was one of those days, you know, there are, there are those days in your life, it was one of those days when you remember where you were when it happened. When you realize, we were talking about this at dinner tonight, when you realize it wasn't just an accident that the first plane had flown into the trade, World Trade Center because the second one followed it. And then there was smoke billowing from the Pentagon. There was smoke coming up from a field in Pennsylvania. American life, life in America changed dramatically on that day. I would encourage you that if you were not alive on that day to ask anybody who was, they can probably begin, only begin, to tell you how life changed as a result of those terrorist acts. The, I'm a historian, so I have some nerdy stuff that I want to show. Um, our newspapers reflected the, the events of that day. This is the New York Times from September 12th. 2001, it says, U.S. attacked. Hijacked jets destroyed Twin Towers and hit Pentagon in day of terror. The New York Daily News, it's war. And I was living in Bristol, Tennessee at the time, so even small town newspapers had stirring headlines, despicable acts of terror. Although there are many of us who have stories from that day, the people who are on the stage with me tonight have particularly important stories to tell. They, although life changed for all of us, it changed especially for them. And uh, I'm excited for you to get to hear their stories tonight, to hear their perspective. So I'm going to introduce them, uh, I'll just say their names, and then as, as they uh, speak, I'll tell you a little bit about each one. Uh, this is David Shedd, this is Ann Van Hall, and Tom Dykehouse. And we're going to start tonight with David Shedd. Oh. David is an alum of Geneva College, and he's currently serving on the Board of Trustees at Geneva College, so he's very connected with Geneva College. He served in the U.S. government in a wide variety of national and sec national security and intelligence positions for the 
33 years. In August of 2014, he was named acting director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, uh, following four years of service as deputy director. He led a defense intelligence enterprise workforce comprising more than 16,500 military and civilian employees. From May 2007 to August 2010, he served as the director of national intelligence, deputy director for policy, plans and requirements. And prior to that, Mr. Shedd served in a number of capacities in the office of the director of national intelligence, national security council, the CIA, and in the US, in US embassies overseas. Since leaving the federal government in February 2015, Mr. Shedd has been serving as Heritage Foundation Distinguished Fellow and is an adjunct professor teaching the relationship between intelligence and national security at Patrick Henry College. He serves on several public and not-for-profit corporate boards and works with several international missions and NGOs. Please join me in welcoming Jacob Shedd. opportunity to come back to campus. Uh, my wife and I of 40 years uh, met out in front of McKeith Hall on the second day of college, so there's hope. <laughs> and I married her four years later in 1981. And it was in the room right behind here where I think I could count one television on campus at the time in 1979, where I watched the uh, Iranian hostage taking and the countdown of those days and the profound impact that it had on my life and a call to service in the U.S. government, which began in 1982 at CIA. There's one line I want you to remember in my opening remarks, and it is this following line. You will behave what you believe. In other words, what you believe in will become what your behavior is. Jeff referenced the 19 hijackers on that fateful day of 9-11-2001 when I sat at the White House. They were carrying out in action what they believed. I thought it'd be useful to characterize a little bit of storytelling in between two essentially uh, frameworks or bookends in terms of two Bible verses. I'll give you the second one toward the end, but the first one is Jeremiah 17, 9. For the heart is incurably wicked, deceitful above all things. Having an understanding of what motivates a jihadist is critical to understanding the motivation behind their willingness to die or their thoughts. It would be a tragic mistake for anyone of us in this room to believe they don't believe in what they're doing. They believe it with all their heart, soul, and mind. Sound familiar? For me, it was a normal day going into the National Security Council where a senior director of intelligence in the White House on 9-11. I had been asked by uh, George W. Bush, the 43rd president, to join the White House in February, so about six months before 9-11. And one of the questions that often uh, emerges in the look back is, what did the White House know about what would become the tragic events 
of 9-11. And what I'm here to tell you is there were multiple briefings related to counterterrorism that had strong suggestive indications and even warnings that something was going to happen that would look like perhaps 9-11. But there was never a clear picture of that fateful day in terms of hard intelligence that caused the policymaker, the decision maker, informed by intelligence that would create what we would call that decision advantage to actually take additional action. I encourage you to read the uh, study and the outcome of the 9-11 Commission Report, which was issued in the late spring of 2004, because it does recount everything to the best of our ability in a very bipartisan, now that's a strange word these days, but in a very bipartisan manner, what was that review of 9-11. I went into my office that day, very much thinking it would be another day working for Condoleezza Rice and Steve Hadley and others, and ultimately the president, only to find out that, like so many others that were looking at the television at that 8.40, 8.45 in the morning, was initially believed to be an accident. It was a beautiful day uh, in Washington and in New York and in Pennsylvania. So it was strange, but then once the second attack occurs in the second tower, and then the Pentagon is hit from where I could see it from my window, we clearly knew what those headlines bear. We were under attack. You have to understand, and we were talking about this earlier this evening, you're faced with a situation where the unknown unknowns, as Donald Rumsfeld would say as Secretary of Defense, permeated the environment on September 12th, or later on September 11th, in terms of what was coming next. Would there be some kind of weapons of mass destruction attack? Would there be attacks in other parts of the country, let alone somewhere else in the world that would be simultaneous to what Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Osama bin Laden had, had uh, uh, planned and carried out on 9-11? So there were many questions, and it's easy to look back with that 2020 hindsight and say, well, now it's perfectly obvious this was a one-time big attack and there was no plan B or, a, or an execution of a second wave of attacks. But we didn't know that that day. Chaos ensued after that at the White House. We did not know what we were supposed to do. We didn't know how to respond. There was no proper planning in terms of what would be the continuity of government a formal process in which, how does the government operate if the president, who happened to be in Sarasota with a second grade class, with a reading class on that fateful morning, who desperately wanted to return to the White House to his command position, but of course all the advice was do not return to the White House. And shortly after, a number of us were ushered out into what I'll refer to as a mountain where we would spend countless days and many nights with individuals who would continue to carry out the, the, the activities and the, and the motions and process of what government does, 
from a place outside of Washington, D.C. And so when I think about what, what were three or four things that come to mind in terms of, of this, in, 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 in terms of what we experience, and then I'm going to apply a spiritual application to it. First was missing the profound impact of the rise of Islamic radicalism and the, the truth that they believed and then executed in, fa in the fashion of the attacks of 9-11 and on a much smaller scale throughout Europe and inside the United States in terms of self-radicalized individuals. Sure, we have seen very much this occurring on the Shia side with Lebanese Hezbollah in Lebanon and the attack of the Marine Barracks and that, but we weren't really awakened to the Sunni side of this until the East Africa bombings in terms of two embassies and then the USS Cole in 2000. And still, if you walk down the street and ask the average person and said Al-Qaeda, they probably thought you were talking about some type of food or some kind of region of the world, but certainly would not describe it as a terrorist organization that it turned out to be. Secondly, the observation of the intelligence failure. And this is where, again, I commend you the reading of the 9-11 Commission report. The intelligence failure was twofold. One was the inability of our domestic intelligence that was carried out through the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, to connect it with the knowledge and information that CIA had and vice versa. That is, CIA didn't share the information back to FBI. On these 19 hijackers, some of them coming from Kuala Lumpur, uh, Malaysia, but domestically, the one-way pilot training that some of the uh, uh, these individuals were taking in, in Arizona and elsewhere. And so there was an intelligence failure on the count of the information sharing and then this nexus between the foreign and domestic intelligence that we now talk about. And then there was a policy failure. It was a profound policy failure not to foresee the size, the depth, the breadth of what we were going to see on 9-11 and make those decisions. The response was, and I don't take anything away from 43, uh, the president at the time, uh, was, was phenomenal. But prior to that, it was not the focus of the administration as they got into place. Very quickly, lessons from 9-11. The changes or reforms that our nation undertakes oftentimes come through crisis and not through the good times. That's what 9-11 certainly taught me in terms of, of looking out over now the past 20 years. Out of that, the Intelligence Reform Act is created, the Director of National Intelligence is established, and I could go on and on there. Secondly, it is easy for all of us to allow complacency to replace activism. In other words, that idea that normalization is something that we seek, and we fail then to actively pursue change when change is needed. And I can't think of a better area to be thinking about that in terms of cyber attacks on the United States uh, at present and into the future. And lastly, challenge conventional thinking for that which is truly creative 
about what it is to walk in the shoes of what your adversary might be. That certainly was the other uh, lesson that I took away from. Then as I reflect on Micah 6.8, the other bookend to this, and, and this is it's very familiar to all of you, I'm sure, but what does God require of you? That you act justly, that you love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And the, the, the application of that in terms of the workplace that I served in for nearly 33 years was very real and, and very palpable in terms of my, um, my, my Judeo-Christian framework in looking at the world. And I took away two lessons from 9-11. As believers, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can mitigate threats but unless there's a change of the human heart, you will not change behavior because what did I say? People will act out what they believe. You can mitigate it, you can disrupt it, and we've done that for 20 years. There's a whole new chapter now open with the fall of, of uh, Afghanistan back to the Taliban, and so that may reemerge. But if you ask me if the Taliban has a changed heart from 20 years ago, absolutely not. They will be back. And secondly, taking a kingdom perspective is absolutely vital in terms of understanding the real battle between good and evil. It's fundamental to understanding what makes the world go around. And as a believer for those three plus decades in government, that was my mainstay, that was my anchor. I understood origin of evil in Genesis 3.15. I know the end of the story in Revelation and all the prophecies through Daniel and elsewhere. But understanding the distinction between good and evil is absolutely vital to understanding the nature of the enemy that we face. Thank you. I'd neglected to say at the beginning that at the end we'll have an opportunity for you to ask questions. So as you hear David and uh, Ann and Tom speak, there are questions that arise, which I'm sure there will be. Please, um, please have those ready at the end. Thank you. I want to introduce Tom Dykehouse. He's our second guest tonight. I've had the pleasure of getting to know Tom over the past few years ago in his capacity as head of school at Eastern Christian School in North Haven, New Jersey. He's now has now the distinguished title of Head of School Emeritus, and uh, until last month, he served as the Executive Director and Head of School for Eastern Christian Schools Association. Prior to joining Eastern Christian, Tom was Managing Director and Executive Vice President for Continental Europe at Guy Carpenter and Company in New York. He's currently co-CEO of Christian Schools International, and he's a graduate of Fairleigh Dickinson University in Teaneck, New Jersey. Please join me in welcoming Tom Dykehouse. Thanks, Jack, and thanks for that kind welcome. So I want to share just a couple of memories of two aspects of life in New York and in the World Trade Center, immediately before 9-11 and in the immediate aftermath of the 9-11 attack. Then I'll, um, as David did, close with just a couple of life lessons that I've taken away from the experience that I had 
um, in, um, in that time immediately before and kind of immediately after 9-11. So I went to work on the 52nd floor of Two World Trade Center on September 1, 1986. I left that building for the last time on the evening of September 7, 2001. Friday evening before the attack that took place on Tuesday, September 11th. The World Trade Center was a great place to work. It was a huge building, 110 stories tall. 50,000 people worked in the complex. About 150,000 people went through the subway stations that were in the basement of that building um, each and every day. From the top of the building, on a clear day, you could see, and 9-11 was a perfectly clear day, you could see four states in the Atlantic Ocean. It was an absolutely incredible place to, uh, to work. I have tremendous memories of the things that I saw from the vantage point of the 52nd, the southeast corner of the 52nd floor of Two World Trade Center. Um, in, in the winter time, in the business I was working in, we frequently had to start very early in the day and would be in the building prior to dawn. Um, and from that height, to watch the sun come up over the place where Anne is now, Brooklyn, um, was simply amazing. It was, it was awe-inspiring. At the end of the day, looking out in the other direction to watch the sun set over the Hudson River and, and New York Harbor in New Jersey was also just amazing. We would regularly watch ships coming into the harbor, um, cruise ships. Um, every Memorial Day weekend, there was a tradition called Fleet Week in which um, um, the Navy would send a flotilla um, into New York Harbor and um, military ships from other nations would visit New York as well. And we would be able to just watch that parade of ships coming up the Hudson River and, um, and into the harbor. We watched the Staten Island Ferry uh, just making its trip back and forth from Battery Park City, or Battery Park in, um, uh, in Lower Manhattan, um, over to Staten Island. Um, we'd see the famous New York City ticker tape parades um, when there were events of sort of you know, major national importance, or when a New York team won a, a championship of some sort. Um, in those days, we saw the Yankees win a few championships, so we would be able to, just from our office, watch these incredible ticker tape parades um, coming up lower Broadway. We'd be able to watch thunderstorms come across from the west, across the harbor, um, before the clouds ever got to Lower Manhattan, and slowly watched the clouds come in and eventually envelop the buildings. Ominously, we would look out the windows and we would see helicopters and airplanes passing by at eye level, and we thought nothing of it. I flew to Europe on the evening of September 8th. Um, it was the first time that I was attending a um, European conference um, that I had successfully evaded for a couple of years um, that I really didn't want to go to. 
Um, on the afternoon of the 8th, I remember very clearly uh, telling my wife, Linda, how much I did not want to go. And I, had, uh, I had three kids who were school-aged at that time. Um, they had just started school the week before, um, and you know I really didn't want to disappear at that time of year, but, um, but I did. I was meeting with a client um, on the early afternoon in Europe of September 11th, uh, the morning in New York City. And one of my colleagues came into the meeting room and said, um, an airplane has just hit um, one of the Twin Towers. We talked at dinner tonight about not knowing what you don't know. That news didn't strike me as being particularly unusual or particularly alarming. I was used to looking out the window of my office and seeing little airplanes fly by and helicopters fly by. And I thought that some pilot got disoriented and ran into the side of the building. Um, and I thought, you know, it's it's going to be horrible for that pilot's family and you know whoever's on the plane. But I really didn't think it was a big deal. Uh, I didn't know what I didn't know. We went back to the meeting, we went back to work. Um, and a few minutes later, that same colleague came back into the room and said, a second airplane has hit the other building, and it's not a small one. And that's when we knew that something was really amiss. We broke up the meeting, I hopped in a taxi to head to my hotel. While I was in that taxi, um, I heard the news that the Pentagon had been attacked. Um, and that's when I thought our nation is under attack and this is really, really bad. I got back up to my hotel room to um, watch CNN on television, um, to watch the news and see, um, uh, to see the horrible damage that had occurred in, um, in a building that had cracked home for so many years um, and in the Pentagon. Um, and I was there as I was watching as those buildings that had about a thousand of my colleagues in, in them collapsed. And I wept thinking of what had happened to but also for you know, hundreds and hundreds of friends that I've worked with for years, and the firefighters and the police officers that I knew would be rushing into those buildings at that point, and the thousands and thousands of other people who would be at work in that building on a normal Tuesday morning. We learned in the days ahead that um, 2,753 people in those two buildings had died, including 295 of my colleagues uh, who had uh, perished in the, uh, in the collapse of those buildings. You know, sometimes it's difficult to visualize what those sort of numbers mean. You know, they, they 
sound horrific, but it's difficult to visualize what they mean. Um, I had some some pictures that I um, I hoped they would show. Um, we we couldn't we couldn't figure that part out. But this is the program of a memorial service that my firm held in St. Patrick's Cathedral, um, the Catholic Cathedral in New York City. These are the names of 295 friends and colleagues who died that day. There's hardly a day that goes by, even today, 20 years after the fact, that I don't, I don't think about some of those friends and think about their families and what's happened in the years since that event took place. On the 10th anniversary of the attack, um, I was, uh, I had the privilege of being in New York City that day. I was um, at, um, at the site of the Wall Trade Center. Um, but also, um, subsequently went up to Midtown New York um, to a park called um, Bryant Park. Um, it, is, uh, it is a beautiful park that adjoins the New York City Public Library. And they had a memorial exhibit um, uh, that was being held that day called Chairs. And they had set up um, 2,753 empty chairs on the green of Bryant Park. Um, one for each of the 2,753 people who had died in New York City on that day. They were recording oral history that day as well. Um, it was interesting. They had some folks with things that most of you have never seen. They were called manual templaters. Um, um, they, they had to punch the keys really hard in order to uh, get them to make an impression. Um, and they were asking, what would you like the world to remember about 9-11? And I reflected on that question, and there were there were three things that uh, that came to mind. One is is something that I just shared a few seconds ago: an overwhelming sense of grief at this horrible attack. So many lives cut short. Close friends and colleagues that I had known for years, people that I had actually walked down the stairs with after the 1993 attack on the World Trade Center um, were lost in the 2001 attack. So many families that were left fatherless and motherless and you know, so many sons and daughters that were lost. So that was the first thought that came to mind that I shared with that person who was collecting these histories. The second thing that came to mind was thankfulness for the incredible acts of heroism and countless acts of kindness that we witnessed and we learned of um, in the aftermath of the attack. The incredible acts of bravery in which people ran into those buildings, firefighters and police officers and just ordinary citizens um, that literally gave their lives in efforts to serve others. And then so many small acts of kindness 
mean, too often today we see a we see a society here in the United States in which there is so much divisiveness, and that was not the case in the days after 9/11. Um, there were so many, not only just in the United States, but literally around the world. There were so many small acts of um, kindness and consideration that took place, and that was something that you know those things. Some of those things are going to remain with me my entire life. Um, as I mentioned, I was I was in Europe um, on 9/11. American airspace was closed down. It was impossible to get back from Europe to the United States. Um, the only aircraft flying in the United States were military aircraft. Um, I made my, my way from where I was oddly enough, in the Principality of Monaco, um, to London um, on the theory that, well, hey, my organization had a large office in London, has a large office in London. Um, and the odds of getting a flight from London were a whole lot better than the odds of getting a flight from Nice in France, which is sort of a, it's a beautiful place, but not a great place to get flights from. Um, and I left for London not knowing where I was going to stay. Now imagine there are tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of people who were stuck overseas, and a bunch of them were in London. There were no hotel rooms in London. But a clerk in the Barclay Hotel in London found me a hotel room. In an act of kindness that I will remember for the rest of my days. Um, there was a company in Connecticut that made space available for the colleagues I was responsible for and myself to work. We had lost everything. We didn't have a pen or a pencil or a piece of paper. And the following Monday, six days after the attack, we were back at work um, because of the kindness and consideration of another organization. And then there were just these amazing acts of kindness. Um, you know, once we were settled in Connecticut, it was a there was an elementary school classroom in Seattle that sent us a huge care package of uh, watercolor paintings and drawings and brownies and cookies to just help us people that they had never met and probably never would meet to manage our way through the grief that we were we were we were working through the final thing that i told the um, the interviewer was the thing that comes to mind is resilience the sense that we had to go on, that was demonstrated by so many people. The people working at Ground Zero, as the site became known, that became known. We now know that more than 4,000 of them, more people than died in the attack, have actually died of diseases that came about as a result of the work that they did in carrying a rescue and recovery work there. I think of the resilience of the United Airlines crew that flew me from 
London to New York, and the second airplane to fly into U.S. airspace on that Friday night. They had just lost two of their crews in these attacks, and yet they went to work. And I think of just the ordinary people in the city of New York who did what they did to get back to some sense of normalcy. Um, you know, the, um, the Yankees and the Mets started playing again. Um, Broadway reopened after a matter of week or 10 days. The restaurants reopened. That city had to get up and running again, despite the terrible thing that had happened there on 9-11. So, what are the, what are the lessons of 9-11? I think there, there are too many to count, but there are two Bible verses that, um, that come to mind as I think about that event. Um, one of them is from my favorite Old Testament book, the book of Esther, um, which was profound advice from Uncle Mordecai to Queen Esther. Um, when he said, um, when Esther's words were reported back to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you would come to your royal position for such a time as this. There were so many people who didn't ask to be in the places where they were, didn't want to be in the places where they were, but they did what they needed to do. Second passage that comes to mind is from the New Testament. Um, you know, what's the significance of 9-11? Um, you know, why, why did I survive and so many of my friends did not? Um, and I, you know, to my own mind, I don't know the answer to that. And I turn to um, Romans chapter 8, when we read, know all these things, we are more than conquerors to him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know how many days we're going to have. Make the most of them. And remember who you are. Thank you, Tom. Our last panelist this evening is Anne Van Hyde. And though Anne was born in Oxford, England, she's resided in the United States since she was two years old. She grew up in Oklahoma, Utah, Arizona and New Jersey. In September of 1975, Anne started her own business, and on that same day, she met her future husband, Bruce Van Hine. Anne owned and taught at the New York, excuse me, at the New School of Dance Arts until June of 2011, when she retired from teaching dance. Bruce and Anne were married in 1980, and two daughters were born to them. In 1990, Bruce achieved his lifetime dream of being a New York City firefighter. 
He was stationed in the Bronx with Squad 41, which was killed in the line of duty on September 11, 2001. In 2006, Anne became a volunteer guide at the 9-11 Tribute Museum in Manhattan, where she leads walking tours of the National September 11 Memorial and speaks to school groups. She's shared her story all over the United States and internationally in Ireland, Belgium, England, and Japan. Her recent, recently, her memoir, Pieces Falling, Navigating 9-11 with Faith, Family, and the FDNY, was published, and that book is available at uh, the table over here, the GBAS table, uh, near the entrance of the room if you'd like to purchase a copy. I encourage you to do that. Anne's favorite new role is mom-mom to her three young grandchildren. Uh, please welcome Anne Van Kamp. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Um, Tuesday, September 11th, was supposed to be a day that I could do anything I wanted. Bruce was on duty, my daughters were um, back in school, and I had not started back to teaching yet. We always waited at my studio until after the kids had been in school a week for dance classes to start back up. So I was free to do anything I want, and that's very exciting for a mommy. Um, I dropped my girls off at school, actually at Eastern Christian High School. I dropped them off. I stopped by my studio to check if there was any messages, and as I got back in the car, the radio came on and they said a small plane had flown into the World Trade Center. And my first thought was, what kind of dingling was that? Like, how could you not see the building? It was a beautiful, clear day, and they were saying it was a small plane. But as I put the car into reverse, they announced that another plane had hit. I actually put the car back into park and sat there a minute to listen to what was being said and then decided I needed to be at home. So I started driving home. Um, our home was, Bruce's and my home was about 26 miles away from my studio. Their school was only a couple miles away. Um, people have said, why didn't you go pick your kids back up at school? And I think I didn't go pick them up because if they were at school and Bruce was on duty and I was at home, it was all normal. And I needed for it to be normal. So as I started driving towards home, um, the fire department issued a total recall, which means all firefighters report for duty. Now Bruce was already on duty. Actually, the last time I saw Bruce was Sunday, September 9th. He was working a 24, which means he was working Sunday night till Monday night, and then he was doing a makeup tour on Tuesday. So because he would just have been coming home to sleep and then had to go back on duty, and our home was 50 miles from his firehouse, we decided he would spend Monday night at the firehouse. Um, so Sunday, as he was leaving, he said to me, I'm so blessed. And I said, why? He said, well, why is <laughs> And he said, because I'm married to Miss Anne, which is what all my students called me. And I said to him, some people would not consider that a perk. And then he said, 
um, because we have two great girls, and I said, you're right, we do. And then he said, because we got the trailer. We had always been tent campers, and that summer we got a trailer. In, in between the tent and the trailer, we had a hobble, but the trailer was so much easier than the hobble. So we were excited, and I said, yep, you're right, we had a great summer. And then he went to work. He did call Monday night, and I can't tell you anything about that conversation, but I remember every word of Sunday's conversation, and I consider that conversation a gift. Um, after I drove home, I would see the towers fall, I'd see the other plane crash into the Pentagon, I'd watch all that on TV. I started to pray. Um, I remember the Old Testament story about um, Abraham saying, Lord, if there's a hundred righteous people and goes down, I figured I didn't have time to like go down like that. So I just said to God, God, if there's one righteous person in New York, please do not destroy New York. I actually even suggested to God who that person might be. I don't know if God appreciates my suggestions. But, um, and actually that person I suggested, um, Dr. Ricci, who was the district superintendent for the Church of the Nazarene, is from the Pittsburgh area, so I figured he was a righteous person. Um, I tried to call my parents, I tried to call my sister, no phone calls would go through. Um, as you dial the number, it would say, all servers are busy, please try again later. Then my phone did ring, and it was uh, my daughter Emily calling from the office at Eastern Christian, and just saying, where's daddy? I said, I don't know where daddy is. When daddy would be off duty, we'll call the firehouse. We're gonna wait till later. Now I will tell you that I always knew Bruce would be there because he was in a squad, which is Special Operations Command. So the firefighters and squads have additional training. They do high angle rescues and biochemical, like really the stuff they don't tell your wife anything about. Because it's bad enough he's running into a building on fire. I don't need to know he runs on the building. Um, I always knew, he, I just knew he would be there. I'd pick my kids up from school, we'd visit my parents, we'd come home, they'd watch the television one time, and we turned it off, because there was no value in watching that over and over, and there was no new information. Um, about 10 o'clock, they went to bed, they both went to bed in my bed, and I laid down with them, but I didn't um, put my pajamas on because I knew somebody would be coming to the house and I didn't want to be in my pajamas. It's weird, the stuff that you, that you worry about. Um, at about midnight, I would hear two car doors close and there would be a knock on my kitchen door, side door, and uh, it would be Bruce's lieutenant and another firefighter and they'd come in, they'd make small talk and then I would say to them, just say it. And Charlie, Bruce's lieutenant, said to me, we're unaccounted for. And I said to Charlie, I have no doubt that God can get me through this, but I do not want to go through this. And the minute I said, I don't want to, in my head, 
I heard myself saying what I always said to my own daughters and all my students, most of life has nothing to do with what you want to do, right? You don't want to do your homework, you don't want to pay your taxes, you don't want to do the laundry, but you do all those things. And I can't tell you, there wasn't a sense of dread, there was just a sense of this is really happening and I don't even know what this is. As the wife of a firefighter, there was always a possibility that Bruce could be killed in the line of duty, but I assumed that would look like standing by his bed and burning it. I didn't think it would be he's unaccounted for. Like, how can he be unaccounted for? There was a building, he went in the building, but that was not the case. Just to tell you a little bit about Bruce's day that day. So an early call came in, they went out on that call. And as they were heading back to squad 41, the first plane would hit. They would be relocated into Manhattan. That was not unusual. Squad 41 went to Manhattan all the time. But as they were heading into Manhattan, the second plane would hit. There's 17 minutes between the first plane and second plane and they would go straight to the site. They would park the uh, truck, the vehicle, up on Broadway, walk down Liberty Street, go into World Trade Center 2, get pretty high up in the building, and come across injured civilians and start and bring those civilians down. And he would be killed in the collapse. What I just told you, I did not know for six months. He was considered unaccounted for. I had to fill out a missing persons report, and then after a point, I had to declare him dead. At the week mark, the fire department had a meeting telling families that it was going from rescue to recovery, which was really their way of saying that they weren't gonna pull anybody out alive. So at that point, I set my daughters down and asked them, where do you think daddy is right now? and they said heaven. And I said, well, if daddy's in heaven, then we need to have a memorial service. And they said, what if you're wrong? And I said, that's fine, I can be wrong. Daddy can walk into a service, but we have to have a service. So we planned a service for uh, September 29th that um, celebrated Bruce's life, not only as a firefighter, but as a father and a friend and then on, um, and it also brought glory to our God. That was very important to us. As a matter of fact, at that service, um, I spoke, and I remember saying to the group that um, that God is a gentleman, and He will never force His way into your life, but He's always there, waiting and wanting to come in, and. Uh, that we had shown them God, and that was up to them what they did and what they'd seen, because the gospel was really spoken at Bruce's funeral or Bruce's memorial service. And then on um, October 2nd, we started what we called our um, new normal, which meant the girls went back to school, and I will say that the girls missed very little school, and. Um, that was a blessing because they had such a strong um, community that you see that they could count on. And I went back to teaching little girls ballet. 
and we had all kinds of opportunities the Rockefeller tree lighting, a party at Gracie Mansion, do you want to go to the brand new Toys R Us store, all kinds of stuff, Giants games, all kinds of stuff, which was lovely and wonderful experiences, but the bottom line was Bruce was still gone. And we realized pretty early on that we were seeing what the world does with grief, opposed to what we as believers in Jesus do with grief. People many times would say to me, how are you coping? And here's the word, coping. And I started responding to that, that I wasn't coping, I was hoping. I was hoping in the promises of Jesus. Um, in March of 2002, I would have a phone call in the middle of the night that they had found my husband's body and asking me if I wanted to go see him be carried out. And I said, no, because there are some images I cannot have in my head. I always said to my girls that uh, we didn't have to be brave. Daddy was one of New York's bravest. Yeah, you don't have to be brave. But I knew that Bruce's body would be treated with the utmost respect. His body was carried out by firefighters from Squad 41 and covered with an American flag, and I have that flag. We chose at that time not to have another service. It was actually a very difficult time for us because the information that his body had been found got out before I really had been officially notified that his body had been found and identified. And as uh, my younger daughter Megan said, I've had no, no control over any of this. I should have at least been able to tell my friends they found my dad's body. And that's you know, I don't, um, what I want you to understand is that I went through, and many people went through, a personal loss in the midst of a national tragedy. So it's my loss that the whole world owns a piece of the story. And that can be tricky, just as Recently, when that building collapsed in Florida, it's those people's story, but we all know it, and we think we hold a part of it. And we do, but we don't. Do you, do you understand what I mean? Like, we've got to remember that amidst all the statistics and timelines you learn about history, and please learn history, those were real people. And at the very least, they were someone's son or daughter. That would be the least they were. But they were probably a husband or wife or colleague or friend. 295, you said. Colleagues. It's a lot. The thing I really want you to know about what I learned from 9-11 is, is that God can be trusted. He's who he says he is. And that doesn't mean that I haven't looked up at the sky on occasion and gone, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? That's usually when I'm standing in water when the basement has flooded or something. And I don't really know if that's 
to God or to Bruce, but it's like, give me a break. I also will tell you that you don't want to know the whole story. There was a point in my life that I thought I wanted to just tell me how this is going to play out, God, just show me. It's his mercy that he doesn't show us where we'll be in 20 years. Because the person I was on September 11, 2001 is not the person I am today. And it's the same for each of you. The person you are today is not the person you'll be in 20 years. But I will tell you that you have a God who loves you more than anybody else in the world. And he loves the people you love more than you love them. And he has a plan. He has a plan for you to be his. So I encourage you to believe that and just trust in him and question him. He's big enough for our questions. It doesn't bother him. He's big enough. He can handle it. It's okay to question God. That's okay to say. Because I believe that's true. It's totally okay to question him. But to know that He's got it under control. The night of September 11th, after the fire department came, I did not lay down to sleep until the sun rose the following morning. Because the Bible tells us that joy lasts for a night. I'm sorry, sorrow lasts for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. And on the morning of the 12th, the sun still rose. Only one person controls that. That's God. So I encourage you to trust Him and also know that He never wastes anything. Everything you go to, through, He will use for His glory and love. I'm Dr. Keith Martell. I teach in the higher ed program here at Geneva College. Um, I was also a student here, so I've attended things like this at Geneva for a long time now. And I have to say that this was one of the more touching things I've heard here. So thank you for sharing both personal and professional experiences and events in my life. Um, I'm going to just facilitate the Q&A period, which means I'm going to walk around with the microphone. So if you would, please uh, raise your hand. We'd like to ask our panelists as a group or individuals questions that want to come go to. Why don't you also say your name, and if you're a student, what you major in? If you're a faculty or staff person, what you do here? If you're a community member, um, what you do in the past? Hi, I'm Ian Slippy. I'm a junior here. I have an independent major in uh, cultural engagement is kind of like the idea with it. Um, so my my question for all of you um, would be, so, so you're, you're all believers uh, in my understanding, so how have you experienced, I guess, Jesus' command for us to forgive our enemies, to love our enemies, because this, of course, is an event that uh, make clear, like, we have enemies even if we don't know them, uh, people that hate us even when we don't know them. So how have you experienced uh, that, like, wrestling through that, or have you wrestled through that? A couple of things. Um, 
saw, and it goes to what you said, David, the whole idea that there is evil. And so I knew what happened on September 11th was evil. In my case, because Bruce was a New York City firefighter, he died in the line of duty. So nobody took my husband's life. He laid it down. We'll also tell you, though, that from the beginning, my daughters and I prayed for the hijackers' families. Did the hijackers know their loved ones were going to do that? Like, did the hijackers' families know they were going to do what they did? Did they know they were going to kill themselves that day? I don't think so. So that was still somebody's, that was 19 sons. I'm not saying what they did was appropriate or whatever, but somebody lost a child that day. A child who did a really bad thing, but it was still their child. So I've never let myself go to the hate part of it. I had two daughters to raise. I didn't have time to hate. I think I would echo that. There was too much that needed to be done. There were too many people that needed to be cared for to even spend, spend the brain power on, you know, hating the hijackers. Um, you know, so it's, it's sort of, you know, the emphasis was not on them. It was on, you know, it was on families and on survivors. I'm gonna pull the lens back a little bit. Um, I would go down to Guantanamo and see the detainees. And I would pray for them. These were detainees, obviously they weren't the hijackers. But these were enemy combatants picked up on the counterterrorism battlefield. And I was struck by the depth of their hatred towards us of the infidels, spitting at me, cursing my mother. They learned enough English words to truly express hate in our direction. And I thought secondly of the Apostle Paul as he tended to the, to the clothing in that as Stephen was stoned as the first martyr of the church. And then his conversion on the road to Damascus. And I and I see them as someone that I've worked against. And Ian, in asking your question, there was this requisite to understand what evil looks like, but to show forgiveness at the same time. And I go back to Micah 6:8, because I'm to show mercy, but I'm to act justly in the reflection of that perfection that God is merciful in his mercy, just in his justice. So those would be sort of my experience coming after that and dedicated as I left the White House in 2005 and joined the, the rank and file and the leadership level but of, uh, of the global war on terror. Uh, which, which we took on. And how could I carry that out as a leader in, in a very practical way? And I'll give you a third example. I was in a Middle East country that will go unnamed where I had met the king's brother 
was clearly on the Arrow side. And it led to a spiritual discussion, and I'd love to tell everyone, he fell on his knees at that moment and said, you know, God saved us. But the questions were deeply insightful. They were questions of, why do the Sunnis and the Shia hate them, hate each other so much? Evangelicals are different. So you, it gave opportunities to talk about the gospel inside the palaces or inside the organizations that I dealt with in ways where, again, carrying the banner of Jesus Christ without shame, as the Apostle Paul reminds us to do, uh, bore the fruit of kingdom living in a very practical way. <laughs> was born after 9-11. And what your perception is as a 18, 19 year old, and I'll even give you the 22, because I doubt you remember a whole lot. Could you just share what you thought and have learned of those events as you look back at it as a historical event in our nation? where you've heard these vivid memories that each of us have in very different places in our walks of life. Very personal loss. A policy, intelligence-driven framework in which we were going to respond to it, and then the loss of your 195 friends and colleagues. Would someone be able to share that? And I'm a professor, so I would just call on you anyway, so might as well volunteer. Hi, my name is Kevin Arsenault. I'm a freshman year studying secondary education history. And my perception of it, I'm not sure if other people hold the same opinion, but I'd say, unfortunately, um, as the years goes on, I think it becomes, I think personally, just less and less about the people and more, more about how it's become politicized and the policy and whatnot. That's not something I want to think about. I just think that's how it's started to become presented, especially one of the documentaries that I watched in English class last year, uh, Fahrenheit 9-11. I forget what the director was. Um, he's filmed a lot of interesting documentaries in the past. But yeah, that's just an example of how 9-11, the event, became so much less, less humane and about humanity, and the, I guess, the, the very deep and important aspects that we learned about 9-11, and rather more it's about the political side of it, which, in my opinion, is simply only in comparison to the things that we should be taking away from 9-11 about community and charity and so on and so forth. Others? Um, my name is Emily Gabbard. I'm a sophomore here in Geneva. Um, definitely what Kevin said. I think, I've been thinking about this a lot because I was born actually December 11, 2001, so exactly three months after 
9-11, and I think that our age group is it's such a weird margin in time, because we were, so we went to public school a few years after 9-11, obviously it's a very fresh wound, and I think that we have gotten kind of a, like, half-truth about it, and now that, as, and obviously kids, you can't tell kids all the details, but I think as we got older, nobody actually told us the details. And that's why like, I know I personally was super excited to be here to hear these stories um, because nobody's been honest with us about it. I don't know if anyone else feels that, but and I've been like thinking about a way to say that and I've talked to some people about it. I'm like, did they lie to you about 9-11? You know what I mean? Like, do you feel like you don't know the whole thing? Like they kind of just put it into a very simple, like, oh, this happened and here's the politics. Um, but I think hearing these stories are so important as every historical event. Um, we need that humanity side of it. And um, I just think it's really important for us. So thank you for being here. Can I suggest um, two books if you're interested? I know we have a lot to read in college, but only a free time. Um, there's a book, 102 Minutes, which is excellent. That tells you what was going on in the towers. And there's a newer book called Fall and Rise, which is, I didn't actually read it. I listened to it. And it's pretty tough, but it's individual stories. And um, as someone that is an author, but also I you know, volunteer with the 9-11 Tribute Museum, to me, it's all about the stories. And um, I'm sure that all of your parents and your older cousins and your aunts and uncles all have stories. So um, ask them about it. We're close out of time, but maybe I'll ask one last question to close us up. Um, I remember I was working at Penn State University on September 11th um, in campus ministry, and I was sitting with the students at the cafe, and soon we were like surrounded by hundreds of students in a hub, and students up there watching these massive TVs. And I remember this one student over my left-hand shoulder said, the story of America will never be the same. The story of America will never be the same. And I'm wondering if you all could just take a brief moment to, I guess, take that as a question. How has the story of America changed since September 11th? Or has it? We had to sort of, you know, save the toughest question for last, right? You know, you, well, I think that, that um, life in America has certainly changed so many different ways. Um, it, it's hard to remember what things were like before. Um, you didn't go through an airport the same way as you go through an airport today. Um, you know, in New York City, there are stadiums in the National Guard that are walking around picking up examination rooms and train stations. That didn't happen. Level of sort of 
observation as an outcome of what didn't exist um, for my life. So I have a whole bunch of very practical ways life today is different than it was before. So that's what I want. Well, for me, in looking back over the 20 years of where we're at now, is I think life has gotten a lot more complicated. The great Spanish couple words, mundo complicado. Life is just much more complex in the national security domain. We have the confluence, the greater power competition, and notice I said greater rather than just great power competition with Russia as a major disruptor in China as a global competitor adversary, uh, in which at the same time, the fracturing of the jihadist movement continues to, to take place. Uh, we have, at last count, no less than four, maybe arguably five, groups emerging out of the Taliban's retake of, of Afghanistan, Ghani Network, and ISIS-K, Khorasan, province of Khorasan of Afghanistan. I could go on and on, the Al-Shabaab in Somalia continues to thrive. Uh, Boko Haram in northeast, uh, the eastern portion of Nigeria. Uh, the other way that things have changed is I think persecution for believers is significantly increasing. And the voices that will come to the rescue are being drowned out by the clamor from the woke, progressive side of the spectrum on the Christians' voices around the world. Um, I work with Samaritan's Purse uh, and, and Franklin Graham. I see it there. I see it through um, Justice and Mercy International and the Brazilian Amazon. In, in places where my NGO work takes me, my missions work takes me, is, is this drowning out of, of Christians. And the sort of the demand around the globe to conform and, and to fall into place. You talk about the, the greater observance. You are being watched and heard through this. This is an intelligence officer telling you, you are being heard and watched through this. And, 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 and I don't say that lightly in the sense of, of the tracking aspects of it and all that. It's, it's just the reality. And so you, when I look at the world of today, and the last comment I would make is with sons who are 35 and 34 and grandchildren as well, I can't imagine what the world's going to look like in 20 years, but I have one prediction. The church will be a church of remnant in the world that we're in. I'm not here to predict the end times as pathology and all that. There's someone in your president of the college can take you down that path along with professors in that. But certainly the times and the, the, the speed and the rate of change is increasing at Noah's law applied to baby life. And so when, when I see 9-11-2001 for the celebratory commemorative aspect, the remembrance of it in, in 2021 and see where we're going, thinking of 2041, and, and I think it's, it's, it's a wake-up time for believers for the world that we're in.
would say one thing that's not happy, and then I will bring on another one. Um, you know, there are a lot of 9-11 conspiracy things, like Fahrenheit 9-11 or loose change, that's one that's way out there. Um, and one thing about conspiracy theories is that um, many times they're so loud, the playing of that makes us not look at the things that we should question. There are things about September 11th we should question, like the CIA and the FBI not talking. We should question that. But that gets lost in the craziness of, well, there weren't really any um, planes. Which of have that said to me? No, that's how far that has gone. So, you know, there's things that should be questioned. Um, September 12th, or in the moments after those planes hit and the buildings collapsed, people looked at other people as just a fellow human being. And as Tom spoke a little bit about, people did amazing things for each other that day. And some of those stories we'll never know because both of those people were lost. And New York City and this nation came together in a way that, unfortunately, I don't think we can even explain to you because the pendulum has flown so far the other way. But after 9-11, I received hundreds, and that's not an exaggeration, of cards in the mail simply addressed to the family of Firefighter Mannheim, Greenwood Lake, New York. People got that information out of the newspaper, and they had their five-year-old draw me a picture, or their teenager make me a bookmark, or they wrote a card saying, we prayed for you. And that's what I want you to remember. All those intentional acts of kindness made a difference in my life. So when you hear of things happening on your dorm floor, or in your neighborhood, or in our country, do an intentional act of kindness, because it will make a difference in somebody's life. I want to thank each of you for being here tonight. This has been a special time. I appreciate you coming from Virginia, from New Jersey, uh, to Western Pennsylvania. Um, and just sharing your stories has been very meaningful uh, at, this, at this important time, this important time of remembrance 20 years later. Um, they're going to stick around for just a little bit. They're all very approachable people. Um, if you want to chat with them, I'm sure that they would be happy to answer any questions you have, uh, to talk with you uh, a little bit. Uh, when, when, uh, so in just a moment, I want to recognize Arlene Eastman and Kerr over there who put this entire thing together. Thank you, Thank you.